morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In the, meth, in the month here of December, we're in a message series we're calling the Advent Conspiracy. Now, the word Advent refers to the time before the arrival of someone, the time of anticipation. So let's say you're hosting Christmas at uh, your place this year. You will experience Advent. Two things occur in uh, the period of Advent. First is the preparation time. You're preparing for the arrival of your guests. You go maybe shopping. Uh, You prepare the food. Hopefully you kind of tidy up, clean the place up, probably have decorated already. And then once the preparations are done, you go into the second part of Advent, which is the waiting part. You wait for the guests to arrive and for the event to begin. And Advent is the word that Christians have been using for centuries now to speak of the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And it's because it pretty accurately describes what was true of that first Christmas. The arrival of the Messiah had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier, and everyone was both preparing and waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. But it's also true of the Christmases since that moment, because when Jesus left earth, he said he was going to return a second time. And this time he was going to return to wrap up history. And he told us that it would be really good if he found us prepared, ready for his return. So Christmas is really an annual opportunity for us to remember what he did for us and then to prepare for his arrival again. But as was true on that first Christmas, it's really easy to kind of get lost in the other details of life and to be unprepared for his arrival. So if we're going to be ready for his second coming, we need to conspire to do so. A conspiracy is a counter plan. That's what the word means. It's a decision to to really go against pretty much the obvious and visible plans and chart a different course than everyone around you is. And we use this word conspiracy for the advent because we can't really expect our culture to keep us on track and to guide us to make the proper preparations for Christ's return. That's on us. So this Christmas, what we're doing is we're looking at some of the dominant themes and the way Christmas is now celebrated normally, and we're asking ourselves, is, is that the best way? Or maybe is there some tweaks we could make to the way Christmas tends to be celebrated and ways that we could plan to do something different and get our hearts ready for the arrival of Christ? So today we're going to look at the fourth part of our conspiracy, and that is to give more. Now this may seem like a strange counterplan because, well, this is the season where we already give more than we normally do to anyone else. In fact, we give so much to other people this time of year that we end up giving a lot to people that they don't even want. Finder.com last year and this year has conducted a survey, and they found that on average about 56% of those in the U.S., report receiving at least one unwanted Christmas gift. So that's 142 million unwanted gifts, at a minimum. If you receive more than just one, then that brings the number up. So if you take 142 million, then finder.com did the math, and you multiply that by the average spent on a gift, it comes to $15.2 billion spent on unwanted gifts annually for Christmas. And you can see the breakdown there. So if you're giving someone clothing... You're in the danger zone. It's a good chance it may not be approved by them. And so the question you have to ask is, what happens to $15 billion worth of unwanted gifts? Well, of course, a lot of them are returned. That's what December 26th has become, a chance to return the gifts that you didn't want. Um, A number of them 
um, you might see again this next year. They're going to be re-gifted, recycled back around, and, and you'll notice them showing up at different events. And then the, the report is that a lot of them just simply end up in storage. You know, we kind of hang on to them for a while, and eventually we realize, yeah, I never did like that, and it goes to the garage, and then maybe eventually, you know, to a storage unit. I was noticing some interesting research on storage units. There are 50,000 self-storage units here in the U.S., 50,000. Now, that may not sound like a lot until you discover how many storage units there are in the entire world, 60,000 storage units in the entire world. So what that means is we get 50,000 self-storage units, and the rest of the entire planet gets 10,000. So I think all of that goes to say we probably really don't need to be challenged to give more to each other. We have been giving a lot to each other, a lot of unwanted stuff. But I do think the giving category that we can always uh, think about more and be challenged more about is, is our giving to Jesus. This, of course, is what started all of the giving this season in the first place. Magi from the east traveled a great distance to give Jesus three gifts. And this began the gift-giving tradition. Their part in the Christmas story, I think, points to two important questions when it comes to giving, and particularly giving to Jesus, is why would we give to Jesus? And secondly, what can we give to Jesus? We're going to look at both of those this morning. The first is the why question. Why give? In addition to what we're going to give to each other, why should we think about giving a gift to Jesus? Here's what we read about the beginning of the story of the Magi, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, the Magi were the scholars, the, the intellectuals of their day, which is why often they're more commonly referred to as the wise men. They would study the heavens, and they would study all of the writings that had been compiled up to this point, and they would study the ancient scriptures. They were the top advisors to the kings of the different nations that they would serve in. The position of magi was, was really an appointed position as top advisor in the king's court, which is why sometimes the Christmas carols refer to them as kings. They may have looked like kings, and they may have come from a king's court, but they were not kings themselves. They served the king. Now, no nativity scene is complete without them, but they were not actually there on the night with the shepherds that Jesus was born. It took them a full two years to travel to Bethlehem and offer their gifts to Jesus. So given the dangers and the expense and the tremendous time that was required to travel in the ancient world, you have to ask this question, why did they do it? Why did they travel all this distance and, and risk themselves and, and use all the resources they did, not only to give these gifts, but to travel that distance? Well, they told us the top reason why they did this. The reason is to worship. They did all of this to worship Jesus Christ. As it says, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. From their study of the scriptures... They knew all about the prophecies of the long-awaited Messiah King, who would not only save his people, but would change the entire course of human history. They had been studying the heavens, because one of the prophecies said that the arrival of the Messiah would be accompanied by some kind of celestial event. Now, we're not exactly sure what this star was, because 
Stars don't just suddenly appear in the night sky and last for a few months or a couple of years and then disappear. They are fixtures in the heavens. So there's some debate about what this might have been. Most think that it was a supernova. A nova is an exploding star. That's brightness makes it suddenly appear in the night sky. The star has been there, but not bright enough for us to see. But when it explodes, when it begins to you know, melt down and, and fi- you know, burn up, then all of a sudden a tremendous brightness, and it's, it's like the star suddenly appears. And it can burn for months, oftentimes years. And then when it's burned up, then the light disappears. And so many think that that's what the wise men saw, what the Magi saw. Now, if that's true, just, just think about that for a moment. You have a, a star exploding, burning up at a great distance from the earth. We, of course, have no idea how far away, but given the distance of stars, probably it's fair to assume that the light from that event, that star burning up, probably took hundreds of years for the light just to travel all the way to earth. So that happened hundreds of years before the birth of Christ in order for it to arrive in time. And then you've got the prophecy that the Magi were focusing on, It was foretold by the prophet Balaam 1,500 years before the Magi saw the star. So you've got the prophecy 1,500 years ago, the star melting down and burning up probably hundreds of years before, and all of that timing perfectly with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's pretty amazing coordination and timing. Now, of course, unbelievers will deny this as an impossibility, but the Magi were believers. They were convinced that the God of creation not only could, but would do something like this in the heavens. And so they'd been looking for it. And then it happened. The star was not the only marker that pointed to where Jesus was. The prophecies had also made it very clear that the birthplace of the Messiah was to be in Bethlehem. But they didn't go to Bethlehem. They went to Jerusalem instead, partly because as members of a royal court, They couldn't just show up in another country without first reporting to the authorities and reporting to the king in Jerusalem. I think they also maybe traveled to Jerusalem because it had been now two years since the birth of this Messiah king. And their assumption probably was that by this time, this king of kings must have moved to the city of kings, Jerusalem. But Jesus, of course, was not in Jerusalem. Instead, they found Herod, the Roman puppet king, sitting on the throne. And Herod was not at all happy to hear the news of a possible challenger to his throne. He had paid a great price to Rome in order to become king over Palestine, and he was not about to lose his throne. The problem was these magi were not just rumor mongers among the people. These these were important dignitaries. They were no slouches. And therefore, Herod took them seriously. And he tried to enlist their help in finding this new king. He told them, of course, a lie that... He wanted to worship this new king just as they had come to do. But the truth is he intended to discover the identity of this new king and to kill this new king. The Magi knew of this evil intent, and so after they had found Jesus and presented their gifts to him, they returned home a different way, not through Jerusalem, so as to make the slip on Herod and get back to their their place. But here's what we read about the arrival of the Magi at the location where Jesus was. 
We read this in Matthew 2, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and of myrrh. Now, this was not a baby shower kind of present-giving event. First of all, Jesus was, you know, a couple years old. This was a bowing before a king and worshiping kind of event. It's described again as worship. You see, you don't enter the presence of a king without bringing a gift. And the gift is not, of course, about any financial need on the part of the king. The gift is about honoring the position of that king as the authority. Now, that's really what worship is. It means to bow. When we worship God, when we worship Jesus Christ, what we are saying is we are recognizing his authority over us, and we are bowing in our hearts before him and standing ready to do as he commands, to obey him in whatever way he wants. Now, having been in the presence of many, many kings, these magi were not about to travel all this distance and bow before the king of kings and offer nothing in honor to this king. Now, unlike the Magi, we, of course, can't travel to Bethlehem and see this newborn king. He's no longer there. But like the Magi, we can bow in our hearts before this king and worship him. And then like him and like them, we can open up our treasures and present this king, Jesus, with our gifts. Not because Jesus needs our gifts, but because our hearts need to give in order to truly worship. This is just the way our hearts are designed. Giving is one of the most powerful ways to open up or affect our hearts. In other words, we can tell our hearts hundreds of times that we are not in charge and that Jesus Christ is the ruler and he is the king. But it's often not until we give to this king that our hearts pay attention and begin to take this as real and begin to listen to what we may have been thinking. So in addition to the gifts that are under the tree this week, I believe one of the most important, if not the most important gift that we can give is to Jesus, the king, in honor to him. But there's a second reason that we give to Jesus, and that is out of gratitude. In the Bible, there are two ways described to give to God. The first is called the tithe. The word simply means tenth. What it means is we give 10% of the income that God has given us, we give it back to him. The reason is because we understand that he is the king and everything that we have that has our name on it is not really ours. We have just been given temporary custody of these items and we manage them on his behalf. It all belongs to him. And because our heart is so easily forgotten about this and we begin to think of these things as ours, he says, what, what I require of you to do is whatever the income is, you give 10% back to me in order to align your heart with worship and respect and honor of me. So that's one of the giving categories you find throughout both the Old and the New Testament part of the Bible. But the second kind of gift giving is called an offering. So there is the tithe, and then there is the offering. The offering is something that's given in addition to the tithe, and the purpose of the offering is gratitude. We give out of gratitude. In Psalm 56, 
verses 12 through 13, David writes this. He says, I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David wrote this psalm, the 56th psalm, in response to God's protection from Saul, who had been pursuing him and was trying to kill him. And the whole psalm is a prayer of gratitude. As David says, he recognizes without God's protection, he would not be living in the light of life. In other words, he wouldn't see the sunrise. He would have been dead by now without God's protection. And so he writes this entire psalm in gratitude out of thanks to God. But in addition to the words, he also decided to give what's referred to as a thank offering to God. Now why? Why in addition to the words that are so amazing, they are now included in the page of the Bible, why is that not enough for David? Why did he go on beyond the words to give this gift, to give this thank offering? Well, let me ask you this. Why are you giving gifts this Christmas? I mean, we have a saying that says, it's the thought that counts. So, why not just do that this Christmas? I mean, if you think that's true, try it. Try it this Christmas. You know, Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, tell your spouse or your family or your friends, hey, I'm going to do something a little different this year. We're not going to actually give any gifts. We're, we're just going to say words to each other. Now, words are great, but I'm going to guess the countenance on the faces is going to drop, not raise, at the sight or the thought of there's going to be no actual tangible gifts this Christmas, just words of thanks. And the reason we're like this is because the gifts attached to the words mean so much more than just the words. Now, gifts without words, that's not as much either. It's the two of them together, the thanks and the giving. When my wife and I celebrated our 25th anniversary, I I decided to give her a new wedding ring. The old one was just fine, but we used the original diamond in our original ring as a part of the new ring. Now, why did I do that? I mean, we could have put that money to uh, another use, but the reason I did it is out of gratitude. I'm so grateful to my wife for the years of love and help and input that she's given to me. And I, I couldn't just say on a 25th anniversary, thanks, honey. It's great. You've been really good. You've been just an amazing wife. Now, I, I could say that and much more, but I wanted to do more than that. I wanted there to be something tangible that she could look at that would be an ongoing reminder and statement, not just in words, but tangible statement of my love and gratitude to her. You see, words of gratitude are really important, but a gift takes gratitude to another level. I mean, all of us, we have so much to thank God for today. I know life is hard, and some of you may be going through some real big challenges, but even in the middle of the darkest times, there's so much to be grateful for. I mean, for me, and I know for many of you, I'll never get over God's mercy in my life. I I cannot believe the price that Jesus paid to secure my forgiveness. I I can't wrap my mind around that one. And I I can never thank him enough for my wife, as I said, and then for our two kids, and now their spouses, and then the five grandkids. 
I'm so grateful for my family. This past Friday night, we got together and took a picture of my wife and I with our five grandkids. So here we are in our living room in front of our giant poinsettia tree. No, that's not our living room. <laughs> that's Crystal Court at South Coast Plaza. So they, they have bigger trees than we can have in our place. So we went there to, so the grandkids could ride the Christmas train there at Crystal Court. And so we did that and had dinner and had a great time together. But there's often times when we all get together as a family that I just can't, first of all, I can't believe they're all in town. And secondly, yeah, secondly, I, I just am so grateful that we get to spend time with them. And there's, I mean, not every time, but there's times where I'm just sitting there in silence because I can't hardly. I'm grateful. And you know what I also am grateful for? I, I'm grateful for this church that has been, for almost 30 years now, my extended family. I mean, so many of you in this church have become dear, dear friends. You have walked with us through challenges. You've prayed for us. You've been kind to us. You've loved us. And we you. And I am so grateful for this church and all the support that it represents. And I know that so many people don't, don't get to be a part of a church where they experience that. But I have, and many of you have, and I'm so grateful for that. I mean, words are, are just not enough. And you know what else I'm grateful for? I'm grateful for God's Word, the Bible. I mean, I can't really list how many times I've read something in the Bible or I've heard someone teach about something in the Bible that has really kept me from making a horrible mistake in my life. I mean, that's just happened over and over again. And I, I begin to think about, well, what if I decided to do this and that? Or what if I'd made this mistake? I don't know what would have happened, but life would not have been as good as it is now. Life is always hard, but my life could have been so much worse without the guidance and the direction from God's Word about how to build a life that has real meaning and real joy to it. And I'm in the season of life Whereas Scripture says, you reap what you sow, I'm in the season of life where I'm beginning to sow some sweet, sweet things that come out of God's Word. And I'm so grateful to have learned about those seeds so that I could have planted them so that they had time to grow. I didn't do it perfectly, but, man, I'm so grateful for God's Word. And the truth is, words just aren't enough to express this gratitude. I mean, I, I want to thank God in tangible ways. So at this time of the year, one of the things my wife and I have done for the last several years is we set aside some extra money so that at this time of year, we can give extra to Jesus. And we, this is our, actually we talked about, this is our favorite thing to do in December. We talk about how do we want to give these gifts to Jesus? Oftentimes it's, we give it to someone who's sharing Jesus in another part of the world. So this year we're giving some to someone that's moving to Thailand to be a missionary this year. Another thing that we're doing this year is we know of a church that's getting ready to start in July of this next year up in Santa Clarita, and we know the people are going to start it. And we know how expensive it is to start a church, and there's no one that's a part of the church, so there's no one giving to it. And we just wanted to be a part. I mean, just the privilege of being a part of starting a brand-new church that might impact people for decades or more. Man, we wanted in on that. Now, our gift isn't going to make or break either of these ministries, but it's just something. It's a way for us to give more to Jesus, and it just, 
it's tangible and it just expresses our gratitude to Jesus. And that then brings us to the second big question is give what? That's why we should give, but what should we give? I mean, the Magi gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So I want to use those as kind of place markers to talk about, you know, three possibilities, three ways that you might consider giving more to Jesus, particularly in this season. The first is gold, and that obviously reflects money. I mean, I think that's probably the most obvious way to give to Jesus. And the way you give money to Jesus is you give it to his body. The body of Christ is the church. So you give to a church or a ministry that's carrying out the work of Jesus now. But you can also give money to those that are in need, to organizations that are helping those that are in need. And Jesus says, I take that personally as a gift to me. Here's something Jesus says in Matthew 25, 45. He says, when you refuse to help the least of these, the people that are really in need, my brother and sister, you are refusing to help me. That's interesting. What he's saying is, when you see someone that's in need and, and you refuse to help, then you're really refusing to help me. Jesus says, I take this personally. Now, I know in, in this complicated culture and world, it's, it's really hard sometimes to figure out now, who's really in need and who's scamming who and what's going on. But that's something we have to wrestle with, not just avoid the whole question. Figure out how we can maybe be a part of giving to an organization that might be able to, to vet those who are really in need and to really help in some tangible ways. But whatever the gifts are, whatever the money is, whenever we give to Jesus, those gifts do not end up in storage. They are recorded as a gift. But gold, of course, is not the only type of gift the wise men gave, and it's not the only category of gift that we can give. The next category is frankincense. This was an incense, as it sounds, that you can tell from the root of it, that came from a the dried sap of a tree in the Middle East. And it was not only valued for the fragrance, but it was also thought to have medicinal properties. Now, my guess is that if you show up to a gathering this week with some actual frankincense, it might fall in the unwanted gift category, uh, unless it's essential oils. Actually, the frankincense trees are disappearing because of the demand for frankincense essential oils right now. So maybe it is valuable at this point again. But let me make a, a, a frankincense type of gift recommendation beyond actual frankincense. Something that I think will fill the room with a pleasant fragrance and quite possibly bring healing to those who are in the room. I recommend the gift of a good attitude. A good attitude. Now that's a pretty general sounding statement, but let me define it. Philippians 2, 4 through 7 is a great description of a good attitude. It says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So we can honor and give tangibly to Jesus whenever we take his attitude and relate to other people with the same attitude. Again, what was his attitude? It's summarized simply by not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, a bad attitude has one key characteristic. It's selfish. It only thinks about itself. It focuses exclusively on what it wants and doesn't care about what other people want. 
Now, of course, it's not wrong to do some of the things that you want to do maybe this week. It's not wrong to have interests and pursue those interests. The problem is that tends to be the only thing we focus on. So when you show up at a gathering or a get-together with the family this week, and your primary thought is about what you want and what you expect from the time, I can promise you you're in for disappointment. You're in for a bad time. Why? Because everyone else is showing up with probably the same attitude. They're thinking about what they want. And the result is no one's going to be happy because no one gets what they want. Because all of these wants tend to cancel each other out. They tend to conflict. And nobody gets what they want. But what if you did something very unusual? What if you showed up not thinking primarily about what you want and what you expect, but, but trying to identify maybe just one or two other people that are also going to be at the gathering, that are also maybe part of the family or whatever the gathering is. And your goal is to, to think maybe in advance, and then particularly as you're talking with them, about what they might need, what they might be interested in. And then, if it's appropriate, if it's a good thing, how you might try to help them toward what they've shown up with wanting. Now, if you do that, you've just brought a sweet fragrance into the room. Like incense, it doesn't just affect the other people. It's also going to sweeten your experience. But don't make the mistake of thinking that you can just flip some kind of invisible switch in your heart and go from selfish to helpful. The selfish switch is really stuck. It's really hard to move. So you're going to have to take the same giant step again and again that Jesus did that brought him to the manger that we celebrate this time of year. Like him, we are going to have to loosen our grip on what is rightfully ours. That's what Jesus did. I mean, it says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on. He let that go in order to take on a body. And in order to grow up to be a man that was mocked and ridiculed and beaten and eventually hung on a cross. We're going to have to do the same thing in a much smaller degree, but the same kind of thing. We're going to have to let go of what we're trying to hang on to how we think we should be treated. One of the biggest shocks that occurs whenever we take an interest in others is they don't normally return the favor. Often they don't even notice. They're all too happy to let you serve them and never once think of serving you in return. So if you show up thinking, all right, I'm going to do this for 10 minutes and then it's me time, it's going to be a problem. Now, you serving people the whole day, that's not fair. That's not right. I mean, you're not less than them. You're as valuable as they are. But if you grasp onto what is rightfully yours and what you really want, it's going to be a long Christmas Eve and a long Christmas Day and a long Christmas week, and it's going to be a really bumpy life. So in order to give the gift of a good attitude this Christmas, you're going to have to decide that you're going to give this gift to Jesus, not to anyone else. I mean, you are going to be treating people differently, but their response cannot be your motive. As I said, they, they won't probably notice. They might say, what's wrong with you today? 
but they won't really dial in on it. But Jesus is going to notice. You will be honoring him as on a much, much smaller scale, you're doing what he did. What does it say he did? Taking the very nature of a servant. You're showing up with a servant attitude. Very different, but a very tangible gift. And that brings us now to the last gift category, and that is myrrh. Myrrh is actually taken from the same family of trees that frankincense is. It's just processed differently. It's not dried and burned as incense. It's kind of kept in a gummy state. So in ancient times, myrrh was used actually as a gum or as kind of a natural toothpaste. Now, like frankincense, myrrh is probably not going to be one of the top gifts on Amazon. So let me suggest a myrrh-like gift that is pleasing to Jesus and really in short supply these days. And that is the gift of helpful words. Helpful words. We live in a time of hurtful words. And sadly, as we gather this week, some of the words that are going to be said are going to do a lot of damage, a lot of harm. So let me define for you out of the Bible what helpful words are like. Here's what we read in Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The idea is that if you don't put effort into this, what's going to come out of your mouth? Unwholesome words. You and I are going to have to really put some effort in to make sure that unwholesome words is not what comes out of our mouth. The idea is that if you don't put effort in, this is what's naturally going to happen. It's kind of like bad breath. How do you come up with bad breath? You don't do anything. I mean, you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning. Were you working on bad breath? No. (laughs) Now you got it. Bad breath. You eat lunch. You don't do anything. You're going to have some bad breath. That's the way unwholesome talk is. It's like bad breath. It just kind of comes out of our mouth naturally. So what should we do? Should we just keep our mouths shut? Well, that's one way to address bad breath. Just don't talk to anyone. It's also one way to address unwholesome talk is just don't say a word. But I want to suggest a better way. I think a better way is to put some myrrh gum in your mouth. Sweeten up your mouth by saying only what is helpful for building others up. This word that's translated building in the New Testament comes from a Greek word that's a compound word. It's made up of two words, the word build and the word house. So it's not just talking about building in general. It's talking about a project that you're constructing, a house that you're constructing. And the idea is pretty clear. The idea is that people are like a house-building project on the inside. In other words, people are in constant need of being put together on the inside. This is just true of all of us. Now, I know a lot of people work really hard at looking like they got it all together on the outside, but don't let that fool you. On the inside, no matter how put together someone looks, no matter how confident they appear, no matter how happy they look like, they are falling apart on the inside, and they're in need of some construction. They're in need of some building. They're in need of some building up. 
So think about what you can say to a person. I mean, just pick maybe a couple people when you get together. And think of what can I say that would help this person, would build them on the inside, and then say it. Now, sometimes people think that they're part of the construction project on others' lives is the demolition part, you know, the tearing down part. In other words, you get together, especially people you maybe haven't seen for a while, and you hear about all kinds of things in their life that are like, that really needs to be removed. And you personally take out a sledgehammer, you decide you're going to go to it. You're going to give them a piece of your mind. No, no, this is the building up part of the project. This is not the tearing down part of the project. It is true that in order for change to occur, some things need to be removed from some people's lives. But that's not our job. We have not been given a sledgehammer. We've been given a hammer and nails, and we are to build people up. God in his own way, in his own time, is perfect when it comes to sledgehammering. He in his own way, in his own time, can take a sledgehammer to remove things that he's been wanting to remove for a while. But let him do that. Our job is the building up part, the constructing part. So think about what words would help this person. What words would encourage this person? Every single person you see and you talk to this week and any week is at least a little bit discouraged. They may not look like it. They may not sound like it. They may not act like it. They are. We are, we are drained of courage every day. So what could you say that would be encouraging to them? Every single person could use some words of support and love, words that simply say, I'm for you. I'm in your corner. I love you. I want the best for you. I mean, you just, all you have to do is just say that even. And you just, you just remodel a room on the inside. So what can you say that would be helpful? This Christmas, in worship to our Lord Jesus Christ, and out of deep gratitude for all that he has given us, Let's, let's do more than just give gift to each other. I mean, let's do that. Keep doing that. That's great. But let's think about what could we do to give more to Jesus? Let's give more of our gold. Let's give more of the servant attitude that he gave that brought him here to earth. And let's give more words that actually help and support and encourage and build people up. Let's give to Jesus. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we are beyond words grateful that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but you freely let go of that. And you took on a body. And people looked at you and they didn't see that you were God. And therefore, they didn't treat you the way you deserved. Instead, they... They treated you worse, far worse than even a human should be treated. And yet you allowed yourself to continue to be humbled, to be of service. Not just to help us out a little bit, to actually save us from our sin. And now as we mark this time of year, that great letting go when you took on a body. 
We pray that you would show us how we might bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to you. How we might bow before you in worship. And how we might tangibly give something that reflects our gratitude to you. We're all in different situations, have different opportunities. So speak to us individually about what you might want us to do. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.